Welcome to the Forager Podcast, where I talk with cottage food businesses about their strategies for running a food business from home. I'm David Crable, and today I am talking with Nicole Berry. Nicole just moved to Portland, Oregon, but since 2016, she has been selling custom macarons and other French pastries with her cottage food business, Baked Toujours, in Pasadena, California. Nicole is a very talented pastry chef, so when I say custom macarons, I mean macarons that are multicolored, custom decorated, and sometimes even custom shaped, which if you know how macarons are made, you know that's not easy to do. Aside from selling her creations, she has taken her skills to YouTube and produces very high quality videos teaching a growing audience of followers how to make these delectable desserts. And with that, welcome to the show, Nicole. Nice to have you here. Thank you so much. It's good to be here. So, Nicole, can you take us through, I know you, you've done some training, you've, you've learned from some very talented chefs. Can you take us through sort of the beginning? Yeah, so it was kind of a long road. Uh, in 2010, I went to pastry school in Chicago. We lived right down the street from the French pastry school. And it was this amazing French taught, lots of chefs directly from France. So it was a pre prestigious school. They sent me to France after, and I got to work in bakeries in Alsace, France. And um, so we were still in Chicago, and I moved to California without my husband to work in, at Hotel Bel Air with pastry chef Sherry Yard and Spago. So um, Beverly Hills, Spago. And I couldn't live that far away from my husband anymore. So we were back in Chicago together. And through this whole time, he was doing medical school. It was a perfect time to be in the restaurant business because he was so busy. And I could just put all my attention into making pastries. But once we, we got into the next stage of our life with kids... It just wasn't a right fit anymore. And that's when the cottage food business took its form and I was able to kind of start producing exactly what I wanted to produce out of my own kitchen and be able to sell it and make a small profit. Okay, so you've you've learned in France and you've also learned under some very prestigious chefs in the United States here. What was it like to work in those kind of I don't know, are they bakeries that you were working in? Like, what is it like to work in that kind of establishment? It was rigorous. You have to earn your place. And you just have to not take things too personally and be able to accept criticism and improve. There, I would be working for 12 hours with, you know, minimal breaks and... You figure out you do something wrong and you're yelled at and at the end you just kind of want to cry but you have to hold it together or you know there were days where you felt like you just did all your production you checked everything off you did great and um, it felt so fulfilling so there were great experiences as well I don't want it to sound too negative but in the higher end places that I worked it was put your head down work and it was definitely the satisfaction of seeing improvement and not getting yelled at that kept me going at those places. 
so you worked in a restaurant environment and uh, I'm sure transferred a lot of those skills over to your cottage food business. But do you think you needed to have that kind of restaurant or industry experience in order to do well with the cottage food business? I think it helped immensely. It set me up for success in the sense of knowing sanitary issues, you know, making sure I have food safety, of course, being efficient, uh, working in those high stress jobs definitely make you understand how to do things quickly and most efficiently. And it helped me to be able to put my work down, be with my kids and, you know, separate those things. And also just production wise, how much am I going to feed, you know, just realizing from the first farmer's market that I did, oh, okay, this is how many people bought this and this, just being able to just like a restaurant when you know about how many orders you do a night on a weekend or knowing the tally of how much to bring to different places so you're not wasting a lot of product, if that makes sense. Are there any techniques that you would recommend that come to your mind of things that you do in your home kitchen that you probably wouldn't think of doing if you hadn't had the experience in a commercial bakery or or commercial restaurant? For one, just the way restaurants are set up. So I just got a huge like industrial rack in my house here. So everything is easily accessible. Pull out your bowls, pull out everything, your ingredients. It's all right there on the rack instead of way up high. I'm short too. So like getting things out of a high cupboard really annoys me. So everything just laying it out accessible for you really helps. Uh, I know it seems trivial, but these things, every little thing adds up. Also speed racks, like getting certain equipment from Websterant or whatever well-priced like restaurant grade equipment that you can fit into your home. I mean, I had a 700 square foot home, but a little teeny half speed rack really helped my efficiency because I was able to get a lot of sheet pans of macarons piped out, resting on that. So yeah, I think maximizing space and being able to have things readily available really does help efficiency. Well, I know, let's talk about your cottage food business. I know that you moved just recently to Oregon, like really recently, right? Like, are you still in the the moving process? Yeah. So we moved three weeks ago. So we're here for two years only. It's just so difficult when we're on time restrictions. Uh, Building a customer base can take years and only having two years for sure here for my husband's work has made it difficult for me to jump right in. So I'm trying to figure it all out, weigh the options. But as you said, building my YouTube base and teaching has really given me purpose in my career right now, and I'm enjoying it. So for now, that might be where I focus, but it's hard not to sell too. So I'm definitely at a crossroad. Well, we'll talk about the videos a little later, but I do want to talk a little bit about your cottage food business that you had in California. I know you started at the end of 2016. Take us through what it was like to start that business and, you know, the early days. Yeah, so the early days, it actually started as a teaching opportunity as well. 
I would go into people's homes and teach them how to make macarons or pâte eclairs, um, croissants. And then they liked the food so much and were like, you really need to sell this. And so I looked into actually selling the product and that's when I got the cottage food license. I took it for about a year just selling to, you know, people off Instagram or locals that I already knew, all local people, but people would find me through Instagram or word of mouth. Those are the the best marketing tools that I had. And after about a year, I realized I wanted to do more. And then I got into farmer's markets. Okay, so the farmer's markets, um, tell us a little bit about those and and how you started and how much you made and what you sold your products for and and what products you were selling at the time. Yeah, so I always have sold French pastries. So I tried to keep my menu small so I could do a variety of different ones. Uh, We did macarons, croissants, and financier. Uh, which are like little tea cakes almost. But I sold all those things. I sold macarons for two fifty each, croissants for three, or pan au chocolat or chocolate croissant for three fifty. I was very timid with pricing. Pricing was definitely something that I struggled with. You need to really value your work and your time to price at a good point. And I learned that slowly. So I did increase my prices for croissants eventually to $4 and $4.50 um, for chocolate croissants. But it definitely took me some time to figure out the pricing stuff. I would price per unit, but ended up realizing I wasn't putting enough value on my time, if that makes sense. Yeah, and to preface this a little bit, I mean, you were living in Pasadena. These prices are a bit high, but I've been to Pasadena, and I know that everything is pretty expensive down there. So, yeah, $2.50 for a little macaron. I mean, they're, they're not that big. I know they're they're not easy to make, but how does that compare to, say, what a, a bakery in Pasadena was selling their macarons for? Yeah, so it ranged from about one eighty five. To um, three fifty for one. If you go to a French macaron bakery, they're very expensive. You can get half dozen for about twenty five dollars. So I was definitely on the lower end of the pricing point. Yeah, and I'd imagine that's because they're they're pretty time intensive to make, right? Time intensive, uh, finicky. So you have some product waste as well as expensive ingredients. Well, let's talk a little bit about your macarons because, uh, I mean, I'm not a macaron expert and maybe I haven't been checking all the Facebook pages of the different macaron makers out there, but your macarons really stand out to me. Like, they are truly some of the most unique macarons I have ever seen. I mean, they're custom decorated, custom shaped, is that really common in the industry, or um, where did you learn those skills? Well, first, thank you. I did not learn any of that in pastry school. It's definitely become a thing in the last few years, people playing around with macarons as they become more popular in the United States. 
Instagram is a breeding zone for creativity. And I feel like pastry artists or macaron bakers, whatever we want to call this new group of bakers, but they keep pushing each other. We all keep kind of inspiring one another to try something new. And I feel like it's definitely the good part about social media is being inspired and taking things to new levels. So what types of macarons have you made? I know you've made a lot of custom shapes. Can you just explain to us what kind of creativity you've been using with your macarons? Sure. So recently I made Pikachu macarons for my my son graduating kindergarten. We've also done cupcake-shaped macarons. I've done footballs. I mean, you name it. Any party theme, you can make into macarons. Shells, mermaid shells, like clamshell. What else? Well, I just looked at your, your, yeah, I looked at your page recently, and there were a lot there. I remember one whole display that was like bees and strawberries and plants and beehives and and a sun. And it was just like, I mean, there were just, it was like a whole display. And like, how do you make these custom shapes? Because, uh, or explain how macarons are made and the challenges of making a custom shape with a macaron. So macarons are, if you think about it, seem fairly simple. It's very little ingredients. You've got your meringue, which is just whipping up your egg whites and sugar and then your dry ingredients, almond flour and confectioner sugar. You make a stiff meringue, and this is where a lot of people, I feel like, can have issues because meringue is, if you're doing the French method, needs to be very stiff. You fold in your dry ingredients, and you can go wrong by overbeating your batter, getting it too runny, underbeating your batter, making it not taking out enough air which is called the macronage process. So there's all these key steps and critical moments where you can go wrong, even though it's a very simple process in theory. So when you're making shapes, I tend to make a template. I will draw something myself and cut it out and then trace it onto the shape onto a parchment over and over. So I can just lay a silk pad or a silicone mat over the parchment and then I have that template underneath to pipe on. You just have to make sure that your batter isn't sitting for too long if you're trying to mix a lot of different colors in um, or else your batter starts to break down and your macarons will not turn out. So you kind of have to move quickly and then pipe them and let them dry and then bake them off. And I've seen some of the videos when you do this and it's all being hand done, you know, your hand creating it with the the piping bag. But I was wondering, is it possible to use like a cookie cutter just to, to dump the the batter into the cookie cutter and then lift that off? Have you tried that or is that not going to work? It ruins the the feet of the macaron. I have tried a heart cookie cutter and it actually limits when it's in the oven the ability for your feet to rise or that the the little ruffle at the bottom of the macaron 
So it takes, you know, a fair amount of dexterity to make these custom shapes. Long story short. Long story short, for sure. And you do a really good job. They're all very similar to each other, very consistent, which, you know, is just a testament to how much time you've spent baking and and making these desserts. Um, You talked a little bit about using the French method, and I know there's there's different methods for making macarons. Can you explain like the, the French versus the Italian method and what the difference is? Of course. So there are three different methods that I am aware of. People use either a French meringue to make their macarons, Italian meringue, or a Swiss meringue. And the French is what I just described. The Italian meringue is when you heat up a sugar syrup to about 118 Celsius. I think that's 244 Fahrenheit. And then you pour this hot syrup into whipping egg whites to make this beautiful, shiny meringue. It's definitely a more stable meringue that you make with the Italian method. So people enjoy that. It's definitely what most bakeries use because it's more stable and you can make a ton with the Italian method. However, it takes longer and I feel like it's more efficient just pounding out those French meringue methods. But there's definitely, I feel like you're either on one side or the other, and it's a debate. And then there's the Swiss method, which I've only tried once. But in theory, I love the idea of it. You just, over a double boiler, you have your egg whites and sugar. You whisk until all that sugar is dissolved, and it flows off of the whisk. You don't develop any type of peak but you just kind of whisk it to dissolve the sugar, foam it up a bit, and then you put it on the stand mixer, whip up, and I guess that's supposed to create a more stable meringue than a French meringue. Does that make sense? Yeah, you know, it makes sense. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Yeah, and I actually, this isn't on the topic of macarons, but as we're talking about meringues, there's also very common in the industry trying to make Swiss meringue buttercreams, Italian meringue buttercreams. I don't mm-hmm. think I've heard of a French meringue buttercream, but it probably exists. So are these all the same techniques that are being used, but just adding butter for those types of frosting? Yes, yes. And because the French method is not pasteurizing anything, whereas with the Italian method, you're heating up the sugar syrup and it ends up pasteurizing the egg whites. And then with Swiss meringue buttercream, you know, you're... M- on the double boiler till it reaches a pasteurized point because macarons, you don't have to worry so much about the temperature because you're baking it later. But for the buttercream, you know, you're pasteurizing those egg whites, whereas French, you don't. So I don't think there is a French meringue. Right. That makes sense. I mean, or it would have to be refrigerated. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what would you say for somebody who's interested in getting into macarons or selling macarons Whatever advice you have for somebody who wants to get into this kind of French pastry world. The number one way to improve with macarons is to just go through all your trials. Practice, practice, practice. Because as much as you watch videos, you try to find the best recipe or you pay $300 for someone's foolproof recipe, you're still going to have issues because you have to adapt for your own environment. So getting a recipe, trying it out at least seven times, and if you don't see improvement, switching to a different recipe. It took me 
as much as all my pastry school taught me and being in restaurants, switching to a home kitchen is so much different. I couldn't use my my recipes from pastry school in my home oven. So, you know, I went through a year of trials and trying to get down exactly how I wanted my macarons to be like out of my home oven. And you mentioned that you have some kind of product loss because it's finicky. Do you still have issues or or do you make them perfect every time nowadays? Ha. <laughs> Uh, I still have issues, and I hate to say that, but I do. I never want people to think, like, you'll hit this perfect spot and never will a macaron fool you again. But they are they are divas of the cookie world, and they will still get you. And sometimes it's like, you know, just that it's raining outside, and they all crack because of the humidity. It, it's, it's a fun world the macaron world, because you're always on your toes. So let's transition into the selling side of things. Um, You know, you started to sell at the farmer's markets, and um, let's start there. What did you learn through selling at the markets? I learned specifically that there might be farmer's markets that are good for you, and there might be some that don't fit your product. And being able to realize it's not your product you might just need to, a different audience. So that was a big thing to learn. I was at an amazing farmer's market. It was a lot of kids, though. They would come after school. It was Wednesdays at 3 p.m. So kids would buy the birthday cake macarons. And, you know, you kind of have to tailor to your audience and be able to adapt from what you wanted. I am big on flavors. I always want to experiment with flavors. And once I started a farmer's market, I realized that my customer base there did not appreciate it as much as I did. So I had to adapt and make sure I had those customer favorites all the time. Um, Customer favorites like what? Like cookies and cream and birthday cake macarons and chocolate caramel you know, basic ones that are big crowd pleasers or just plain vanilla. Whereas I'm here, you know, doing way too many components like a composed pastry dish at a restaurant into a macaron and no one's purchasing it, you know. So trying to not getting stuck on your own desires, I guess, or what you prefer and really tailoring to your audience is something I had to learn at my farmer's market. Once I did that, my sales went double. It was easier for me too and cost less. So it worked out. (laughs) Yep. Listening to your audience always pays off. (laughs) Yes, it really does. And and when you started your business, I saw you were making some pretty elaborate sugar cookies, decorated sugar cookies. You're making custom cakes. And did you start your business thinking it would look different than it ended up looking after a couple of years? So much so. I I don't like doing cakes, so I, in the beginning, just wanted to get as many customers as possible and would say yes to everything. With that, I learned how much I do dislike cakes and sugar cookies and all those things. So it was a learning process for me as I took these orders, and then you realize 
if you're not enjoying it, it's not worth your time. So do you think that the the transition to macarons was just your own personal interest and, and not customer driven? To some extent, when I stopped making cakes and everything, that was my own choice. But having everything be macarons on my feed is definitely because that's what social media wants. So that part has limited me actually and kind of cornered me into macarons, which I love Max, don't get me wrong, but I didn't name myself Nicole's Macarons for a reason. You know, I'm baked toujours and I like to bake all the time and lots of different things, mostly French pastries. So it has been also social media cornering me in and liking mostly macarons on my feed. So I have focused on that. So that's definitely driven my YouTube channel. And that's mostly what I do on there for now. So earlier you're talking about the good side of social media being that it pushes people to be more creative. But so it sounds like the bad side of social media is that it can push you into just one niche when you want to do much more with your business. A hundred percent. Yes. Interesting. I don't know if I've heard anyone put it quite that way. Um, so getting back to your business, you, you were doing the markets, but were you also doing custom orders of macarons and, and, and things like events? Yes. So I took a lot less custom orders once I started the regular production of a farmer's market, but I did do custom orders and I would do weddings here and there or just birthday parties, custom orders for birthday parties. I tried not to take too many per week as I tried to keep a part-time hourly work week because I have two kiddos. But I love doing custom orders too because it's just so fun to be able to tailor it to an event and have it, if you get a picture of a dessert table with everything all together, it's just one of the biggest it's very exciting for me. <laughs> I'm nerding out on that. Wait, so I, I, I often hear about people who start at the farmer's market or a generic event and then kind of move to the custom route. But you're saying that you sort of dropped a lot of the custom stuff when you started doing the market. So were you making more money through the markets than you could through just custom orders? I think so, because I was doing regular production. I like to put a lot of effort into one thing at once and I don't multitask well, if that makes sense. So having a lot of custom orders in one week together would make me feel guilty that I wasn't fully focusing on the other order. So once I was doing regular production and then being able to do like one custom order a week, that helped me actually, which is, I know it sounds weird, but it helped me make more money all in all, because I was able to make more without being stressed about the custom orders. <laughs> One of the challenges I would think about the markets is shelf life of your macarons and having to make enough for the market. And there's always going to be variations in how much anyone buys at a given market. Can you talk a little bit about how you prepared for a market, how much you made? Were you able to guess how much people were going to buy at any given market on any given week? 
Yeah, it was pretty consistent unless there was a holiday or something where the schools were out, like a Thanksgiving break time. Not as many families would come out to the market. It really depended. And if it was raining, oh goodness, in California, if it's raining, or Southern California at least, no one's coming to the market. So I would definitely tailor to the weather and do less for holidays, which sounds sort of counterintuitive, but that was what I learned at this specific market. I would sell about 13 dozen macarons and sometimes it would be as low as like seven dozen. And that was, you know, I would keep most of my macarons and products in a chest freezer. And then usually I could actually keep those and they wouldn't lose their shelf life because it's still cold. I'm not having it out in the sun or anything. And I could keep it for one more market if it was a really bad selling week. But I would definitely have to try every step of the way, try my macarons, make sure they're up to par, but they were able to be saved and frozen. And so were you freezing all of your macarons before a market? Yes. So macarons freeze great. Uh, I wouldn't freeze my croissants or anything, but yeah, they is what we did in restaurants as well. And it's a really great way to keep them, keep their shelf life and not have to worry so much about losing all your product. Yeah, of course. And how long do they keep frozen? In the, I've tried them a few months later and they're fine, but I would do a, a rule of thumb of just if they've gone out once before, the second time I would not. They were ours to eat after that. But if they, if it was leftovers in the freezer, I mean, macarons can keep for three months and still have a nice bite if you have a good seal on your freezer. But if you're going in and out, I would not do it more than once and like out to a market and back in, if that makes sense. Yeah, because you're defrosting it partially and freezing it again. And what about the packaging? When you're putting them into the freezer, do you try to minimize the amount of air that's around the macarons? I would just put like a big Rubbermaid Tupperware. I'd put them all in there. But each flavor would have its own Tupperware and then airtight container. And then you put them in the freezer. Yeah. So pretty simple. And they're not like trying to stick to each other or anything after being no, in the freezer. They do really well, even with royal icing designs or if I were to do airbrushing even that sticks pretty well and it doesn't when it you have to temper them out of the freezer into the refrigerator so it doesn't sweat and make condensation that's an important part but other than that freezing macarons they are one of the best pastry to freeze and keep well with their shelf life and not destroy the product hmm. and were you trying any kind of custom decorated macarons at the markets or did you try them at a like a marked up price? Because most of my audience were children there, <laughs> I did not mark up the price, but I did do Easter bunnies. For holidays, I would do a fun shape. I did bees around Earth Day and did like lavender honey flavored I would do fun things and usually it coincided with a collaboration on Instagram. So I would do something 
more exciting, use it as content as well as sell. Hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I, I can imagine. They should have that, been priced. Yeah, they, they should. Yeah, higher. I, mean, I can imagine <laughs> they probably took a lot longer to make, right? So much longer. And like I said before, I really had a difficult time raising prices or pricing properly. And I get a lot of crap for that for my loved ones. That's why I like YouTube because I don't have to get paid through actual people. I get paid through a company and it feels like less obtrusive. I don't even know. Business is something that I am learning and it's hard for me to make money. I don't does that even make sense? Yeah, no, no. You <laughs> you prefer the indirect monetization model instead of the direct monetization model. You you struggle with the um, you know, asking too much. I mean, as you raise your prices, you're going to be getting some pushback from that. But then again, you know, I think it's also important to realize that the money that you're charging is what supports your business and keeps it moving. And if if it can encourage you to stay in business and do more of it, then you're doing a service to your customers, right? By, you know, giving you an incentive to keep on going or make those special designs or whatever, if that's what your customers demand. Absolutely. There is this future dream of mine to have a small niche bakery, very, very small maybe even like a window, like a food truck or something. I don't want it to be a full-fledged bakery because that's just another baby in itself. But I feel like maybe having more direct payment of rent and all those types of things will really help me see how much this is important and helps me run. But as a cottage food business, I think what's harder for me to price my products out higher because I'm like, oh, I'm not having that overhead, even though you are, and you're using all that electricity and water for all those dishes, but not seeing it in a paper, I think, deterred me from charging more. Yeah, the, some of the fixed costs versus the variable costs, some of those fixed costs are hidden until the end of the year when you do your taxes, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, but when you were doing the custom orders, I don't know if you did any custom shaped or decorated macaron orders, were you charging more for your products for those? Yes. Um, I would charge $24 for regular macarons for a dozen. If they were custom ordered, it would be $30 a dozen starting at, depending on what else they would put it might be a little bit more for dipping the macaron in chocolate or so i definitely would for custom orders charge more but the farmers market stayed pretty uh flat and equal that doesn't seem like that big of a markup though right <laughs> yeah not for the amount of time it takes to decorate these items um did you try to charge more or did you just never explore that avenue i I don't think I tried. You could have, I, I know in Pasadena, you could have charged $4 each for your custom decorated macarons, at least. Yeah, so my market was in Altadena, and it was right ac across from Pasadena, but there was a lot of people that used government assistance for their fruit and stuff like that. 
So it, it wasn't like a, a high-end farmer's market in the area I was at. Yeah, I can understand why that would make it hard. I don't know what you're going to do in Oregon, but uh, if you start to sell them, you might consider raising your prices a little bit. I think that's a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> um, so can you talk a little bit about the process of making your macarons, you know, what, what's like the start to finish process. And then when you have a um, customization, like if you're, I know you're sometimes customizing even the colors, multiple colors in a macaron, how, how does that add to the, the timing and, uh, and the process? Yeah. So if you're doing multiple colors, you use multiple piping bags and just more product in general and less yield of the batter because it's if you want like a swirled macaron, you're going to get a little bit batter left stuck in one piping bag and one in the other, and you just get a little bit less yield. Uh, so I would charge for, you know, multiple colors a little bit more. If you do like gold leaf, that was more, you know, everything could add up Um if you're doing airbrushing a specific design, I have a silhouette, which is like a cricket. And, you know, I'd make my own stencils and then airbrush whatever design they want on there. And that just all takes time and also produces more waste because you screw up on a few, you know, you have to do a couple testers. And so that would all just be an extra, you know, usually each additional customization was about two to five dollars more. Two to five dollars more per 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 dozen, yeah. I assume. Per dozen, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. yeah. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> not per not per macaron. Of course. Um, where do you source your ingredients, and in particular your egg whites? I would go to Restaurant Depot. They would have liquid egg whites in a carton, and I would use a combination of liquid egg whites and then regular eggs. So there was less yolk waste. And then, yeah, sometimes I would get my eggs at Costco as well, the whole eggs, because you can get a, a lot for a very good deal. The regular grocery stores, I feel like, were not my best friend with cost efficiency. So I would do the bigger stores like Costco or Restaurant Depot for most of my products. Or e Amazon was a great place for my almond flour. And do you use any kind of like dried egg whites? I do. I do use dried egg whites. I would just get those on Amazon as well. So you said that you were making like uh, 13 dozen macarons for a market. And you said you were in a 700 square foot home, I believe. How much were you baking at the height of your business? I would bring about 230 macarons to the farmer's market, or I would make about 230 a week. So, And was that difficult for you to produce in your little home kitchen? It was only because I only had about three hours a day to work because that was the only window that both of my kids were at school. My daughter was in preschool and my son was in kindergarten. So I only had 
a window of three hours that she was at school. So it was a little bit difficult in the sense of balancing that, but um, just because of time limitations, but space-wise, it would have been, it, it was fine. So a lot of people ask me, they, they say, you know, I don't know if I have enough time to do this business or they have a family like you do. They have kids to take care of. I mean, I have a little one just over one years old, one year old, and Aww. he's, uh, you know, when he's not being taken care of by grandparents or my wife, he, he's definitely a lot to handle. But it sounds like you weren't putting a ton of time into this business and you still had a fairly lucrative business. I mean, a side business, right? So what would you recommend for someone who doesn't, maybe somebody who has kids, a mom, or somebody who doesn't feel like they have enough time to make a cottage food business work? Yeah, I think it's all about what you value. So as a mom, I wasn't getting everything fulfilled. I needed to work, but I couldn't go out of the home at that time. Just I didn't want to, at least I should say. I didn't want all my paycheck to go directly to childcare. I just didn't think it was worth it. But I did need a little flexibility and something, an outlet to keep my skill set up because I know I want to work out of the home again. But at this time, it just wasn't the right fit. So I would say it's definitely worth your time. If you are wanting to stay sane, if that's going to help you in a therapeutic way and being able to produce, you know, some type of financial monthly income. It might not be a ton when you're doing cottage food business part-time like I was, but it could definitely be worth it if you need it mentally is what I'm trying to say. I feel like you can definitely put out a lot if you can focus full. Your full-time job is your cottage food business then you could definitely hit those marks. I think in California, what, it's 50000 a year now that you can make? Right. Um, but here's only twenty. But I was never even near that because I was only doing part-time. And um, you just kind of have to have the mindset of it can be as lucrative as I put into it and just having that mindset and that expectation there already, setting those expectations helped me just know that this is helping the long future goal. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, we talked a little bit about it earlier, but can you expand a little bit on what you have done to market yourself through social media and what you found has worked well? Just, I actually have a friend in Facebook and she had, they get credits. So she promoted one of my posts on social media in on Instagram and it really did help. I never wanted to pay for promotion and it might not be the thing for everybody, but it helped target the audience to local orders and it increased my local or orders a good amount. So that was great. Also just doing getting your name out there, doing collaborations and being present on social media, it takes a ton of time and it can be overwhelming, but it does help. But yeah, I think being a part of the community and being a valued part of it helps your name get out there and increases your ability to make a profit. And I mean, now I have an Amazon storefront 
which, you know, I get an income from monthly as well as the YouTube channel and different sponsors that you can get from businesses that you get a commission from sales that you make. So there's all of that to involved with once you get a big, bigger base on social media. Yeah. And, and a lot of those are probably coming through the videos that you're doing, right? Not so much from the macaron business. Yes. Yeah. Those are from just social media. Yeah, you're right. Uh, I don't know too many cottage food businesses that have successfully leveraged something like an Amazon storefront for affiliate commissions, unless they transition to teaching some of their skills, which you have done quite successfully. I know it's still a relatively new channel on YouTube, but yeah, I've I've watched a few of the videos and they are extremely impressive production quality. I'm actually blown away by um, the amount of time you must put or your husband must put into making these videos. Talk about how you started your um, your YouTube channel and how you decided to start doing that and um, some of what you've learned in the process of kind of putting yourself out there as, a, as an expert and as a teacher. Yeah, so ever since we knew we were going to move and I was going to lose that customer base, we put attention to online content so we could hopefully have some type of income it was kind of a pipe dream because it's it's not that easy to make money on YouTube, but we put a lot of money into it. We got a nice camera, some good studio lights, and a microphone. Uh, I don't think that's what you need when you're first starting out, but my husband is already into photography, so it was a good a good compromise of being able to get some nice things and also say it was for the business and you know strive to make money off of it. So it's worked out really well. Um, We were inspired by vloggers and how cool their camera work is. And, you know, they take you everywhere. And we kind of wanted to give that sense into the baking world because we hadn't seen that before. It's mostly, you know, we've gone a little bit away from it just because viewers tend to like the more tutorial style. But the vlogging is kind of how we started and wanted it to be. So hopefully we can go back to a couple of those a week and then a couple of those a month, my apologies, and then maybe more of a tutorial style once a week. And wait, what's the difference between the vlogging style and the tutorial style? So vlogging is more like there's a camera in the bowl or I take you to the grocery store with me, those kinds of things, whereas a tutorial style is more me standing in front of the camera and giving you only, you know, that one point of view as I describe how to make those macarons. Got it. And what is it taking for you to produce a video? Like how how much time do one of these higher production videos take? Oh, they take a very long time. It's a whole night of filming. And then the editing is another day. So it could take up to 16 hours. Yep, I can believe it. Yeah. <laughs> I've done a little bit of video editing in my time, and uh, I know it takes forever. And it is hard to start a YouTube channel. I mean, there's so much on YouTube, right? Has it been better than you're expecting, or has it been harder than you're expecting to get viewers? What, what's been the experience of just trying to get your name out there? It has definitely been harder than I expected. I thought 
followers on Instagram would translate to subscribers on YouTube, and it definitely doesn't. It's a whole another ball game that I had to learn, and we've had to learn. I should include my husband because he's done a lot of research. And it's been fun to navigate through that because it's more personal in a sense that people start to know you and they like I have a live every week or we try to do a live every week of just baking and hopefully people are baking in their home while they watch and they can ask questions and I just feel like we're building this relationship even though I can't see them and it just it's especially during this pandemic it has given me a social outlet that I don't have frequently besides my family so it's been fun but it has not translated into I I thought it would be easier I'm very naive to get followers and to make money and it is not (laughs) well I do I just looked at you have about 9,000 subscribers so that's that's very impressive but uh, how long did it take to get to 9,000 so we started in late August or September early September of so 2019. Yeah. But what was the progression like? Like how long did it take you to get to a thousand? So it was very difficult getting subscribers in the beginning. We actually paid for promotion on, on YouTube and that got us up to a thousand in a few months. And that helped a lot because once you get to a thousand you can start live streaming and that brings in a lot of new people as well. If we hadn't paid for promotion in the beginning, I think we'd still be probably at about 700 because there's a lot of great channels out there and a lot of great awesome quality videos that don't get any views because it's so oversaturated, right? So the promotion helped a lot and it was hard to pay for that. But it has helped. Now we're making money on YouTube. So we justified it through that. Well, I believe that 10,000 subscribers is another kind of magic number. And once you pass that, I feel like there are even more things that you can do. Or maybe that just it just propels you forward. So you're getting really close to that number. Yeah, that would that would help. They pay so little it took so long to get to like a hundred dollars like two months i think (laughs) only a hundred dollars and then you're talking 16 hours for one video right so it's just a lot of work and it can get really discouraging in the beginning but we already see an increase in income monthly now so we're hoping you know if we stick it out and be consistent it can give me some type of income while we're in this in-between stage and not selling my product as much. Well, yeah. And I think one of the differences with you is that the production quality of these videos is so high. It's so good. And you're very good on camera, very well edited that I think that's really helped you just move up because starting a YouTube channel is extremely difficult, but it's been less than a year now. And um, I'm looking at your YouTube channel right now and it looks like your most popular like Macaron 101 class or Macaron 101 video has 117,000 views. So that's that's quite a lot. And uh, I don't think your results are typical, but the difference is that you are a true expert in your field and 
you are putting a lot of time into the production quality of this. And I know that you're on your way up. I mean, maybe you haven't made a lot of money yet, but uh, I'm pretty sure you will pretty soon. Well, thank you for your confidence. It would be nice. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's not the goal right now, but it would be nice just to be sustainable for, you know, as someone who was making $8 an hour in the kitchen, you know, in the restaurant business. It's just, I've never in the food industry, you don't make a ton. So I'm not looking to be rich. You, I don't think anyone does in the food industry. I just want to be able to support and help my family and it feels nice to be able to do so. So of course, cross our fingers. Uh, I guess what I'm saying is that you're doing all the right things. You're putting all the right pieces no, in place. You. you just have to give it a little more time. Yeah. Patience, right? <laughs> yep. It's a slow, slow growth process. Um, well, to get back to the cottage food business, I just wanted to know if there were any times during the last few years that are particularly memorable, any stories or things you've been a part of that come to mind as like fun fun memories from your time in California running your business. There really are so many, especially because this job, you know, cottage food business, it just made me feel whole while I was, you know, having small children and being a part of the farmer's market community is one of the best things that I've experienced the whole time I was in California. I don't know. There is something about community that is one of the most important things to me and helps, gives you so much satisfaction. It sounds like your your business was very fruitful and hopefully as you transition to Oregon and then maybe somewhere else later, you can get back to that uh, community and selling out at the market again. But anyway, Nicole, we have been talking for quite some time. How can people reach out to you? I have a website that I need to update, but it does have my contact information. My website gives my Gmail account, my business account. They can message me on YouTube or Instagram or Facebook. (laughs) I've got lots of different places that they can get a hold of me. Um, You can send a direct inquiry on my website as well, baketujour.com. And I'll link to it in the show notes, but how do you spell, for someone listening, how do you spell baketujour? It is B-A-K-E-T-O-U-J-O-U. Perfect. So baketojour.com. And yeah, you have at the bottom links to everything, the YouTube, the Instagram, and certainly people are going to want to check those out because uh, you have some impressive work on display there. Um, Thank you. But thank you so much, Nicole, for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure. Oh, thank you. That wraps up another episode of the Forger podcast. Nicole's macarons are super impressive, so you'll definitely want to check out the photos on her Instagram page, as well as her amazing YouTube videos where she shares a lot of great advice. If you are thinking about selling macarons or starting any kind of cottage food business, head on over to forge.com to check out your state's cottage food law. For more information about this episode, go to forger.com slash podcast slash 17. Thanks for listening, 
and I'll see you in the next episode.